Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. very welcome to this edition of Magnified, my podcast series conducted at the kitchen table. Interviews with highly successful people, all produced in association with Strategic Powers Connects. I'm delighted today to have a man who has recently retired from the job that he has had for many years, but I think is going to be very busy in his new role as the chairman of IDA Ireland. He is somebody who has had a storied career in taxation. I think he might actually be, outside of politicians and public servants, the most influential man in Irish economic history. <laughs> He's, he grimaced and now he's laughing. Fergal O'Rourke, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Matt. You know why I'm saying that, though, don't you? Because... You are the man who is credited with the sort of the tax strategy, the corporate tax strategy of the 21st century, which has brought in hundreds of billions of euro in tax revenue into this country. Ah, it's probably a bit overblown, Matt. I mean, uh, I I have spent my 37 years in PwC as boy and man working in uh, inward investment. In fact, I was only recounting to somebody recently. On, I joined on the 8th of October 1986 and I got a memo from my then boss, a guy called Ty Godunna, who was a bit of a legend back in the 80s and 90s. And there was a single line on it that said, I'm going to get you to focus on the tax aspects of inward investment in Ireland. And that single line and that memo on my first day shaped my life, shaped my career for the next 37 years. I, I spent quite a lot of it uh, once a quarter going up and down Route 101 in California knocking on doors of companies who were thinking about Ireland who didn't know where Ireland was who were in Ireland already trying to persuade them why Ireland was the place for them to be when they were expanding their operations into Europe and, and uh, that single line you know as I look back now if you'd offered me my just turned 22 year old wide eyed up from the country in Athlone that career and that life I would have bitten your hand off and said where do I sign my soul away you were never wide eyed were you I was I was oh, I come on up. you grew up in the most political of households with your mother being a minister on many occasions uh, surely you actually were not wide eyed you were open to the ways of the world yeah well it's funny like uh, I grew up in Athlone which was you know Midlands town uh, went to the Marist College in Athlone the local, the local school my dad left school at 16 uh, he w- worked in a cash and carry in Athlone then he was one of the first Catholic sales rep for Jacobs and then he ended up running a small oil, oil distribution company my mum did a BA in, in UCD and came home and ran a haulage business with her brother Paddy for a number of years then went back into the H-dip and then taught but my mum was in local politics until I was 18 she got elected to the doll the same year as I came to Dublin to college but uh, I you know, I Athlone was quite uh, rural, uh, you know, quite a, a, a non-Dublin town. And certainly when I came to Dublin first and went to UCD, after about three months, I thought, oh, geez, I really don't like Dublin. And I, you she know, I was about this in her uh, yeah, memoir about that's right. you were threatening to quit college. I was, stage. yeah. I, I, I had got offered a job by the ESB and their management programme and... Uh, I just didn't like Dublin and um, it just took me a while to settle. I, you know, I I just turned 18. I, it was my first time away from home and I was very lucky because um, I uh, shared a digs with another guy from Athlone and uh, 
you know, I was it was great because mum had started in Dublin. I was able to go in once a week, get fed, get a bit of money, <laughs> you know. And uh, but yeah, that first three months I found found tough. And uh, but you know, you get through it like everybody else. And yeah, but I no, but, I but you learned a lot. I, mean, I think this is something I read about you when you became managing partner at PwC, where you had to be elected. Yeah, that you learned a lot about canvassing oh, for yeah. votes. Even as a young fellow, oh, yeah. your mother was in local politics even before she got to the national stage. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, you know, when I was 10 or 11, uh, I, uh, mum would have a clinic at home on a Saturday and you'd be answering the front door and showing people into the, the sitting room as was and they'd be waiting their turn to see mum in the office. And sometimes, like as I got older, you'd do the odd career yourself, you knew it was a fairly straightforward thing. So you got to understand that, first of all, everybody who came to your door was equal. It didn't matter where you were from in the town, you know, every one of them had a vote and every one of them had their hopes and dreams and aspirations. So you got to understand about dealing with people. And I like subconsciously, I suppose, I took that into my work life. And when I led the organisation, I, I realised that it didn't matter whether you were, you know, at the top of the tree or whether you were cleaning the place every single person in the building had hopes and dreams and aspirations and every single person in the building shaped the image and the brand and reputation of your organisation through what they did when they were in their office and what they did outside the office and when I was running for managing partner um, you had I had to go around to the then 98 partners with three candidates and you had to persuade them why you were the right person to run the firm and you know the two guys are running with against uh, running against Andy and John like they're great lads and super guys but Neither of them ever knocked on the door in their life <laughs> looking for votes. So as I went around to each of the 98 partners, I would always end with, I'd look them in the eye and say, you know, can I count on your vote? And, you know, a third of them would say, look, Fergal, you're brilliant and I love you, but I've worked with John all my life for Andy and I'm going to vote for them. And a third would say, look, don't waste your time. You have my vote. You know that. And a third would want to look anywhere but in your, you look in, your, in the eye and... Um, you know, uh, if somebody would say to you, Fergal, geez, you're a great tax person, you're the best tax person in Dublin the last 30 years, you're absolutely wonderful, I wish you the best of luck, that's a no. <laughs> you're not getting that vote. And I understood that, and I understood, I suppose, from knocking on doors for many, many years, from my mom and my cousins, you understood when you engaged with people, a lot of people would be up front, but a lot of people wouldn't be up front. And when you stood for re-election, I believe you won with 100% of the vote, which led your mother to compare you to Kim Jong-un. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though there were, in 2019, when I ran for re-election, there, were, there was no other candidate, you still had to get an affirmatory vote. It was a secret ballot and you needed to get a two-thirds vote. And I remember mum saying to you beforehand, you know, how do you think it'll go? And I said, ah, I think there'll be a 90% turnout and I'd like to think I get about 90% because you've cracked a few heads on the way and uh, I got a 100% turnout, I got a 100% of the vote. Now, she was very sceptical. She thought they probably didn't think it was a secret ballot. <laughs> and I said, no, mum, genuinely. But I, to be honest, that was probably the biggest tribute I got in the eight years of managing partner, the, the confidence the partners had in me. Uh, and, and, and how, how did, we did you get on with Andy and John? Those Great, no, no, it was great. No, because no, this is an important yeah. question and that so many people, when they do get to the top and if they get into a contest, particularly in corporate life, where they beat others, sometimes those others depart or they're sidelined, not treated well by the winner. No, no, no. And in fact, they John has only retired the last six months and Andy is still there. No, they had great careers. And in fact, it's a bit like being Taoiseach because the um, the deed gave you all the powers of a benign dictator. You picked your leadership team. You determined the income of every partner in the building. And half my leadership team that I picked to run the firm with me didn't vote for me. 
and while I got elected in the first count, I recognised I needed a team, a sort of a team of rivals as such, where you, you picked uh, the people who were right for the job. But one great thing about partnership, one great thing about the PwC organisation was once the election was over, it was over. There was never any lingering of, you know, divisions or that. Everybody just rode in behind me straight away. And, and that really helps. And, uh, you know, it made it easy for me. So you're part politician, part salesman, part <laughs> tax expert, tra- t- part organisational manager. Well, you know, as as managing partner, you're effectively the CEO then. you And, and you know, when I took over, I was 50, I thought, oh, old dog, new tricks. There's not much for me to learn. I learned every day. I learned so much about the people agenda. Uh, I, like, I would have thought a lot of my time was going to be in the marketplace. It was, but an awful lot of time was dealing with people. And my job was, in a way, to put a flag on a faraway hill and say, that's where we're going. And then to devise a strategy with the leadership team and then to motivate our people and inspire our people. And, and one of the things we did over eight years was kind of change the culture. I was much more open and much more transparent. And, you know, I, I really said to people... There shouldn't be a question you ask me that my answer is, I can't tell you. And my style, I suppose, I'd be quite enthusiastic, I'd be very positive. And I love getting out and about amongst our people. And we have a global people survey where we measure the, I suppose, feedback from our, our staff done all around the world at the same time. And over eight years, we we clearly, through the feedback we got, created a much more diverse, inclusive area where people felt empowered to change the organisation and I had a very simple philosophy about people a happy worker is a good worker and people are happy if they're accepted for who they are irrespective and I used to say I don't care what your race creed, colour sexual orientation or the football team you support although I had a known prejudice against Manchester United supporters that when you join PwC you could be yourself and you could make a difference to the organisation and over the eight years we kind of empowered people to change the organisation put up their hand and say I think we can do things differently here and uh, it was it was fantastic it was really the people who changed the organisation and talking of people I remember you saying to me once that you had something like how many nationalities over oh. 80 Oh yeah, when I left, we got 88 nationalities in PwC. And again, you know, we used to have uh, pillars to sort of deal with inclusiveness. We had a generational pillar, we had had a a sexual orientation pillar, a gender pillar, but we had an international pillar to do that. And it's amazing, you know, small things that you don't pick up. I remember one partner came to distraught where he uh, he had a team um, he had some Muslims on his team and they went out but it was during Ramadan and he had forgotten he, he didn't realise and of course they couldn't eat they went out for you know and but you learn you learn from honest mistakes but it once people it, it's all about just creating understanding of the backgrounds that people come from and, and re- making analysis and reflecting that. So 88 different countries represented at PwC when you finished up. When you started in PwC, oh. how many do you reckon? Well, there were two. There were cultures and non cultures <laughs> and, and it was the dubs who were in the ascendancy. But yeah, I mean, but it's reflective of Ireland and how Ireland has evolved over that 37-year period. Uh, so it's tell fantastic. us a little bit about the size of PwC and what it does for those people who are listening oh, yeah. who don't understand, don't know much about yeah, accounting well, firms or consultants. It's a professional services firm and effectively we help people in business do business. So whether you want your audit done or your tax done or whether you're buying another company or you need help with your cyber security or you need help with your strategy or you're liquidating companies or you're raising money, really all aspects of business. Uh, firms like PwC, my old shop, uh, are, help companies do that. And it's been a great, you know, uh, as the Irish economy has boomed really since probably 
back in the 90s, uh, you know, firms like PwC and others and law firms have done really well supporting not just the inward investment here, but the external investment. Not many people realise that Irish companies, for example, employ more people in the US than the 300,000 people that US companies employ here. It's very much a two-way street now and it's in all 50 states. So we're a hugely open economy, but it's not just about companies coming in here. It's about companies expanding abroad. And if you think of the companies we've created over the last 50 years, whether it's a CRH or a Kerry or a Martin Nocton's company or a Paddy Power or Ardav, a Paul Coulson's creator, a lot of the newer companies now, there's some brilliant Irish companies that have gone out and conquered the world. Okay, and when you're leaving, you've left PwC, yeah. you left in October. 8th after, of October, 37 years to the day that I joined. Okay, how are you going to cope with not having that in your life? It's funny because if you'd asked me a year ago, uh, or even longer, I would have said, God, you know, I'll, I'll, it'll be a huge adjustment and, you know, maybe, I'll, maybe they'll lead me for something else. But the way it worked is I ended my eight years as managing partner on the 30th of June. By arrangement, I took my sabbatical to July and August off, came back in September to allow me to retire the 37th anniversary of the day I joined. But when I came back, it was very clear and uh, the firm had moved on. They're under new leadership in the McDonough, great guy, although a Manchester United supporter, uh, and uh, great guy, uh, laid out a new strategy. And I was like a, a, a former footballer, rugby player who had done well for the team and had now retired. They still loved me and liked me, but there was a different team out in the pitch now. And intellectually and emotionally and psychologically, I knew the firm had moved on. And I had no option but to move on myself. And, you know, I'm, people like Paul O'Connell say, oh, you know, you have the jersey for a period of time and then you move on. And I never really understood it until I stood down as managing partner. I had the jersey. I was the captain for eight years. And now they're the new captain. And you don't want to be the guy who's kind of hanging around the dressing room saying, hi, I'm still here. I, I've really, I've only gone back once since then and that was to see my PA to give her, <laughs> she was helping me out with some stuff and I just need to give end of time and space. I need to give myself time and space that when I go down back, enough time has departed. I'm now kind of coming back but it's more than a visitor role. It strikes me that particularly in professional services um, and in banking, financial services, mm. things like that, that there seems to be a desire to get people to move on in their late 50s or when 60 comes, it's almost compulsory retirement in some places. Yeah. And I often wonder, is that necessarily a good idea? Because you do roll the risk of losing institutional knowledge to a certain extent, which could be useful at some stage in the future down the years. And also because people are living longer, healthier lives. Is it necessarily good for people to be retiring from their positions so early? There's a positive and there's a negative. You're right. There, there is the issue around institutional knowledge and in many professional services firms like PwC, you, 60 is a cutoff point. Uh, and as managing partner, um, as partners came up to retire, um, there were one or two partners who say, God, we're really sad to be losing him at 60 or her at 60 because they still have more to offer. But for every one of those there were maybe three or four whose race was run. They really had put in a huge effort at the coalface. And you could see it. They had run the race and they needed a break or they needed time off or they needed, you know, it's like as I was 28 years a partner when I retired, it was fairly full on from half six on a Monday morning till, you know, eight o'clock on a Friday night. And most of those evenings you were out, you had something on, you had breakfast, you had lunches, you had dinner. You know, I used to love coming home on a Friday evening around half seven. You'd drop the briefcase, you'd change into your sweats, you'd open a bottle of wine, you'd finally feel 
the week is over and you might get the odd cut over the weekend so it, it's a very in, like when you're at the top of your game it's quite intense and well yeah I, I will do other things I'm not going to retire I'm 59 no, I'm not going to retire but there are a lot of people who when they've come to 60 they've done their role and I think part of the reason I still feel uh, really positive and energised and want to do more is you know, when I was 50, coming up to 50, my back was at me quite a bit. And I, in a, one of those great strokes of luck, there was a, a woman, Carol Kedney, who was uh, running our gym in the office. And she saw, she said to my PA, you send Fergal up to me and I'll sort him out. And I finally took my physical, I was still doing a bit of squash and a bit of football, but I finally took my physical health in hand when I was 50. And I'm probably stronger and fitter and more flexible and more supple now at 59 than I was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that that physical health and that sort of being fit and in good shape, that prolongs your working life. But just getting back to what you said about your lifestyle, I mean, were you a workaholic, do you think, over the decades? And ah, Yeah, I was. Uh, I probably was. And particularly earlier in your career when you really want to prove yourself to the partners who, who made you. And I think after that, it's a matter of more organisation. And Maeve, my wife and Sam and Jennifer uh, were great. They understood I had a job that was that took a lot of time and that. And they were hugely supportive. And you can't, you know yourself, you can't do the job unless you have the full-time support of your family like that. And Maeve gave up her own career. She had a very high-flying career, gave it up to raise the kids. And, um, but then once Friday came, uh, I was off duty and, you know, you did your drive into the football and the basketball and the tennis and, you know, when they were playing matches on a Sunday, you went around. So I was full on then at the weekend where I could be. And even an odd time during weekends. I'd, and I think nowadays as well, particularly at work, I'd always encourage people, you know, if your kid is doing uh, the Christmas concert at 10 o'clock on a Thursday, go to it. And I think I'm and the modern day person now is more organised about their time they understand that you can take a couple of hours out. One of the great benefits... Sorry, of co- only if you're in certain types of jobs. I know, I think... Well, I, I think impl- I think COVID has revolutionised the work um, contract between the employer and the employee. And I think there's a recognition now that employers should do the right thing and employees can be trusted to do the right thing. So certainly you're right, maybe not in every industry, but I certainly know in, in the firm I came from and in others, you know... There's now an in-day flexibility where, uh, and, and I think what COVID did was the tide went out and you saw those companies. And one, again, of the great kind of um, compliments I got uh, after COVID both said to me directly and through our, our surveys were that people said to me, you talked a lot about values in the good times, but you lived the values in the bad times. So we went out pretty early in COVID and said, for as long as possible and as far as possible, there'll be no job cuts, there'll be no pay cuts. And we in we kept people up to date the whole time of what was going on. And we put our people first. And, and we put it first in terms of flexibility. And we continue that after COVID. And I think there's a new work ethos out there where we recognise people have lives outside work and they need to be allowed to accommodate those lives within their working lives. For during that COVID time, how difficult was it for those who came from other countries? Because you talked about having yeah. 88 different nationalities. Because one of the things that I heard was that an awful lot of the people who had come to live in Ireland felt very isolated yeah. during COVID because they didn't have the networks that a lot of those who have been living here for decades or whatever would have had. Yeah, I mean, 
COVID was really interesting because, you know, I will remember Friday the 13th of March, uh, for as long as I live, you know, we got the leadership team together and we said, what do we do now? And we met probably every day for the next few weeks to sort of get a plan together as to what we do. Because there's no playbook. This wasn't something we'd done before. But pretty early on, we identified connectivity with our people as been pretty central. We're a people organisation. We were a people organisation. And that connectivity was massively important. And so we ended up creating almost interlocking pyramids throughout the organisation of everybody looking after their team of five or six and making sure they're in regular contact and, you know, where possible, going for walks, the team. And the real learning there was actually not when you have the five or six on Zoom or Teams or whatever who were talking. It's the one or two who weren't talking. They were the ones you needed to watch out for who were kind of keeping very quiet and kind of trying to bring them out of themselves. So that probably was the single biggest area of our focus during the period of COVID was connectivity, making sure everybody felt they were being looked out for and looked after. And I think creating that sense of tribe and that sense of team was hugely important. And while I was responsible for three and a half thousand people, everybody in the organisation was responsible for somebody. And they knew that. So it might be their team of three or four people or there might be their team of seven or eight or 20 or whatever. And, and that regular connectivity, we hope anyway, got us through that. So how well do you think is Ireland doing now when it comes to the integration of people from other countries? beyond PwC because we're in a situation where we have many people complaining about the numbers of immigrants who are coming to the country and particularly those who are seeking asylum but also some of those who have come via the EU because they're EU citizens and who are quite entitled to be here. What do you make of the current discourse that we have in Ireland towards the presence of immigrants given that you've had a detailed experience of working with so many different nationalities? Yeah, I mean... You know, I look at our organisation, the organisation I used to work in and say, you know, what I saw on the streets of Dublin a couple of months back, that's not the lived experience that I see. But when you talk to some of them, they would say, yeah, not time you'd be going down the street and somebody would shout something at you. So there's thankfully a small but evident strain of non-tolerance in Ireland, which I find disturbing, but I also find incredible given our own history. Uh, and um, it's very easy to stoke up fear and hatred and uh, mistrust against immigrants, which is which is totally wrong, given that 150, 200 years ago, Irish people were all around the world trying to make their way. And much more recently than that. And much more recently than that, from but our starting, generation, I, mean, yeah, for, I don't know how many people in the 1980s, which we've all come from, actually ended up emigrating while to, we stayed in Ireland. Yeah, it's the UK or Australia or America or whatever. And it is worrying. And it's, I, I'm slightly concerned about the election, the upcoming election, because I think there could be... So is the local the, European election? The local European election. And, and, and potentially, if, if it's not held on the same day, the general election. Uh, and, you know... We have been rem- politically remarkably to date immune from some of the currents that have swept through the UK and the US. And I'd be worried. And Europe. And Europe in some parts of Europe. And I think there's, in some, uh, funny, I was down home in Athlone uh, recently uh, where there's been very successful integration of uh, of immigrants in, in Athlone over many years. My, and my brother's involved in local politics down there, Angus. And, you know, Angus would say they've worked very hard in Athlone at integrating it. But he, he always said, 
but but you've got to watch the numbers. You you know the the positivity of the experience is directly related to the quantum of people coming in and the the ability of the local community and the infrastructure to successfully absorb those. And in some communities, there's a genuine fear that if you if you get that balance wrong, you won't have the infrastructure and the ability to absorb them. So I think, you know, there there is some voices who are who are genuinely trying to say if you overload immigrants in a particular area they will not have the positive experience they should have and the local won't have the positive experience because of the lack of infrastructure and then there's voices which are just saying nobody should come in here which is absolutely wrong and I think you know the two extremes the debate if we suddenly said we're taking in a million immigrants in the morning people would say we, we just couldn't absorb that if somebody said we were taking in zero immigrants in the morning Morally and legally, we have a responsibility and given our history to take in immigrants. So it's getting that balance right. And in your new role as chairman of IDA Ireland, how do you think this might impact on investment decisions into the country? We'll get to tax and issues like that. But if an employer is looking at a changing Ireland in its attitude towards how foreign people, what would it think in relation to foreign money? Ah, yeah. Again, the overwhelming experience, though, is positive. Uh, for every negative story that's been out there over the last six months, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of positive stories. And I know that myself in my old employment from talking to people, how, how they've integrated so quickly, the friends they've made. You know, we see the changing nature of the Irish soccer team, uh, GA clubs. Overall, it's a very, very positive experience. So we just need to make sure that the, that positive element is reflected fairly and, and proportionately uh, in the media. And that I don't, I don't see it, I don't hear it. And again, relative to other countries in Europe, uh, we're still very much the positive end of the spectrum on that. Okay. Tell us a little bit about how you see your role as chairman of IDA Ireland. Well, as I said, I, I'd worked in investment, inward investment all my life. And uh, I, I've known Frank Ryan, who's been the chairman for 10 years. And I knew Frank was retiring at the end of December. And a number of people encouraged me to put my name into the ring. I hadn't formally applied for a job, no, at 40 years. So this is a new experience. In fact, if I if I tell a story against myself, uh, I um, Julie Cinnamon, who was the chief executive of Enterprise Ireland, uh, she's retired now, but Julie's a friend of mine, and I asked Julie uh, to give me a hand with the process. And uh, when the, the, the there's a, a statement published as to you know what are the requirements, what's necessary, what's what's desirable, and all this, and I printed it off and I went to Julie and I said, um, Julie, I said, uh, like it's written for me this job. And she smiled benignly at me and she patted my hand and said, of course you'd think that. She said, you're a man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> which put me back in my box pretty quickly. But Julie and Katrina Hallahan, uh, gave, who formerly of Microsoft, gave me a, a hand. And I suppose I mentioned my mum and, and uh, my dad earlier on. And, uh, you know, both of them gave back uh when I was growing up. So my dad was secretary of the local rugby club for 20 years and then he was president of the local rugby club. My mum was a local councillor. So when I was 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, on a Saturday, as I mentioned, I'd be manning the clinic and letting people in and out. A Sunday, I'd be down at the rugby club putting out the flags and the pitches, cleaning up the bar afterwards. And I suppose I saw them give back uh, to the, the local community. And I was in the fortunate position when I retired in October that I could have retired. I I didn't need to work 
Um, now, intellectually, I did, but I could have given up. And, um, you know, I, I've decided, and I'd be doing a few other things, but uh, I've decided I had three tests that anything I looked at. Do I know, like, and trust the people I'll be working with? Do I think I can add some value to the job I'm going into? And will I enjoy it? And the IDA very much ticked those three boxes. I really admired. I've worked with the IDA people on the West Coast for many, many years. Uh, I love the area. I think I can bring something to the table. I said to Michael Owen, the chief executive, when I met him, I said, Michael, the good news is I know a lot about the agency. I know a lot about the landscape. You don't have to modelly cotton me along. The bad news is I know a lot about the agency. I know a lot about the landscape. You won't be able to kind of <laughs> fog me off with uh, with stuff. But um I, I, I think I can add some value. I, I think I can help the team. I think I have some insights into inward investment. And I suppose my job is to work with the executive team and the board to try and make sure Ireland, when, when companies are looking at expanding outside their home countries, that Ireland is in the top one or two choices when they're looking to expand abroad. But will it be now that the whole tax situation is changing? Mm. Because we have a situation where for the big companies, for the foreign multinationals in particular, our tax rate has now gone up to 15% yeah. from the 1st of January. So does that mean that there is an advantage to for these companies in coming to Ireland or indeed even staying in Ireland anymore as the tax rates equalise throughout the world? Yeah, it's funny because... <laughs> although people won't believe me, tax has not been for the last certain, close to a decade the single biggest determining factor. If you go back to the turn of the century, I, I knew you'd say it. You. I knew you'd say it. But it's funny because like back, you know, when I had to start my career and into the early 2000s, tax was the single biggest determining factor. But people underestimate the single access to the single European market. That is massive for a lot of European companies that come out here. Again, it sounds cliched, we speak English. We like Americans. Uh, there's a there's a positivity about Americans here that isn't as relevant throughout most of the countries in Europe. To use a Mary Harney phrase, we're closer to Boston than Brussels or Berlin. Um, so culturally and economically, a lot of those issues, that stability, the fact that they kind of know what they're getting here. Uh, so tax still important, but not massively important. And it really came home to me when all the tax stuff was was brewing in recent years. Um, the head of global tax of one of the biggest companies in the world, we were chatting about it at some length. And at the end, he said, I don't care where Ireland ends up, he said. I know Ireland will be at the competitive end of wherever the new environment looks like. So that's where we've positioned ourselves is you don't have to be the lowest. You've got to be at the competitive end and then have a lot of other things going for you. Okay, so does that mean that Brexit was actually a blessing for Ireland? That it was a good thing that when the British decided to take themselves out of the European Union, that they actually copper-fastened our ability to attract investment into Ireland to service the continental European market? Viewed solely, totally through that prism and solely through that prism, yes. So if you are saying the only determining factor was, are we more attractive? Does that make us more attractive than Britain? 100%. And I had first-hand experience of companies saying, I'm not going to the UK now because, yeah, it's a big market in its own right, but it doesn't have that access to the European market. Now, for a variety of other reasons, Brexit was a disaster for us, but solely through that prism of attracting inward investment, it was a big plus. And we saw it here in financial services where 
Um, a significant number of jobs and decision-making moved here from London just simply so they could continue to service the European market. Would you have concerns, though? There have been reports as well, though, that we are now making it very difficult from a regulatory point of view for international investment in Ireland, particularly in financial services, where there are suggestions that the central bank has become far too involved in box-ticking exercises and perhaps revenue as well is heading the same way and that that will act as a disincentive to foreign investment. Well, that's really mostly a financial services issue and you're right at one level, but the reality is the playbook that all the countries operate is the same. Now, what Revenue and uh, the Department of Finance have been very good at over the years, and I've seen it firsthand, uh, sometimes they say no in Revenue and Finance when companies go in looking for things. But they say no in the nicest possible way that I've had clients come out saying, God, they were really nice there the way they told us no. But they explain why we're telling you no and this is why no actually is the right answer for you too. And uh, and I think maybe the perception would be that the central bank aren't as that, aren't as positive in saying no, if that doesn't sound like a contradiction in terms. And so, you know, when you actually drill down into it, I think the central bank is operating to the same playbook as, uh, as other central banks around Europe. Um, they probably are they have a bad bedside manner is it like a doctor who delivers bad news in a bad way I, I think that's probably the accusation they're getting understandably given what happened a little over a decade ago where maybe if you go back to the start of the century the central bank would have been seen as one of the you know other agencies of state really flying the green flag and getting banks and financial institutions in here they got badly burned during the global financial crisis even though it was probably more the domestic banks than the foreign banks and i think that has shaped understandably they're thinking in the intervening period. Okay, and then you talk about stability. So what about political change in this country, particularly as it might then result in changes, not to a corporate tax regime necessarily, but taxes that would apply to the executives of the foreign multinationals who locate here? Yeah, I mean, after the last election, uh, I would have had probably a call every few days with US companies saying, can you explain Sinn Féin to us and what they're about and who they are and everything? And um, I think it's fair to say that over the last couple of years, Sinn Féin have been very much on an outreach programme. Uh, I know firsthand they've spoken to a lot of US companies, uh, Mary Lou, Pierce and others, explaining what Sinn Féin's about and what they're not about. And... Um, you're right. In the course of that, they've made it very clear that they have no issue with the um, the uh, corporate tax regime. They're in favour of 12.5. Uh, they're in favour of the OECD proposals of the R&D tax credit and that. So their signal very much is to corporate uh, our newer investment. We're not going to rock any boats. But they have openly said they would be interested in looking at a wealth tax, at raising tax rates on, on high earners, at, at looking at, at tax credits. And, you know, that I, I think that's going to be one of the battlegrounds in the next election. Um, the uh, and, and, you know, my in again, having spoken to them on a number of occasions, I have said to them, look, you need not to be careful not to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, because at the moment, as you know, over half the corporate tax take take comes from uh, 
top 10 companies and in fact it's a bit like the Premier League it's the top 4 or 5 that really are are, are contributing uh, that tax and um, the Irish tax model works at the moment uh, but look at the end of the day the electorate will decide uh, what they want and what answer did you give all those American executives about Sinn Féin after the last election and would the answer be different now four years later? I, I think they've clarified uh, in more detail a lot of their corporate policies now, uh, their taxation policies now and um, it'll be interesting uh, bec- you know they, at the moment, I think they're 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 probably if as an outside observer, it looks like they're tacking a little bit more towards the centre, uh, and and certainly as it pertains to inward investment, they're trying to make it very clear they don't want to upset the the existing model. Do you take it as inevitable that Sinn Fein will lead the next government? No, I mean like as a, a cephalologist like yourself uh, who likes the old elections. Uh, no, the, the polls are interesting. I mean, um, uh, if the polls were replicated tomorrow in seats, I think Sinn Féin would clearly be the largest party. But I, I think if you take the current government parties and Sinn Féin and you translate the poll results, I think it's going to be far from clear who will form the next government. And do you think... Fianna Fáil should be part of a government as a junior partner to Sinn Féin? Oh, that, that'd be an ecumenical question, uh, Matt. I, <laughs> I don't, it'd be, uh, but again, as a, as a kind of an amateur uh, political watcher, it'll be interesting to see. Um, uh, George W. Bush had a great phrase to excuse his youthful indiscretions. He used to say, when I was young and foolish, I was young and foolish. When I was young and foolish, I was on the Fianna Fáil National Executive. And uh, I always remember I was on the Executive in 1989. And uh, after that election, uh, the National Executive, or Charlie Hawhey, called us all in. And, uh, you know, people stood up and said, you know, no coalition Bobby, o- uh, Bobby Malloy is the devil, Desi O'Malley is the devil, Mary Harney is the devil, there can be no coalition, no coalition. And Charlie nodded sagely and said, I hear what you all say and I've, I'll take your advice into consideration. And 24 hours later, um, Charlie Hawhey and Desi O'Malley <laughs> had done the deal. So at the end of the day, politics is about numbers. People will fight election campaigns based on their own manifestos, their own position. But once the election is over, the arithmetic will determine a, sign- a lot of stuff. What will happen thereafter? Are you still a member of Fianna Fáil? No, I haven't been a member for years. Why uh, not? Um, in 1989, uh, I was kind of approaching, look, will you consider running in the election in 89? And uh, I, um, I was heavily involved at the time and... Uh, my mum would have been, never pushed me, but would have been delighted. My cousins were starting to get involved. My peers were starting to get involved. Uh, like Michal would have been a couple of years, a few years older than me, Brian Cowan, all those. And um, in one of the biggest strokes of luck I ever had in my life, I was working on a job with a guy called Tom Grace in the office. Former Irish rugby. Uh, former Lions player, yeah. And, and I kind of was talking to Tom and he persuaded me and I was I was a junior I was well down the ranks he persuaded me I had a huge career in front of me at PW as was if if I stuck at it I remember thinking God I'm really far down the totem pole but he saw something in me and I, it was a real learning for me he could see something in me that I didn't see 
and thought I could do well. And, and, and one of the legacies I hope I've left is I've tried to continue that through my career. If I saw somebody who I thought had the potential early on, I told them that and I told them and I try and help their career move along. And he and I remember thinking, oh, and I decided I'd focus on the job for and I, I kind of gave up the politics. I stood down from the feet of all executive and I kind of, I really focused on the job and it paid off. But when did you give up your membership? I, I don't know. I've kind of, I, I just had laps like everything else. I just got so focused on work. I mean, like, I'd still go when my mum was running. I'd still go down, take my holidays, go down and canvas for her. When my cousin was running Brian the by-election, I'd go and canvas for him and Connor and the rest of them. But it was very much a family thing at that stage. In my introduction, I said you're possibly one of the most influential non-elected or non-civil service people because you would have been very much somebody that your cousin Brian would have relied on when he was Minister for Finance, weren't you? I mean, you would have been regularly in contact with him. Uh, yeah, but in fairness to Michael Noonan, I was in regular contact with Michael Noonan. I've become quite friendly over the years with Pascal Donoghue. Um, in fact, now you've mo- been ecumenical. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I've, like, I've... And and the same, you know, when I meet Sinn Féin, I have huge regard for people who put themselves forward for election. I've knocked on doors, not for myself, but for my family members. To put yourself out there to run for election is, takes phenomenal bravery. And I don't care what your politics are. If you have actually knocked on a door and said to somebody, I am running for election and I'm looking for your vote, there's a there's just a huge bravery about that I've applied. So I, I suppose over the last two decades, I've had as much contact with Fine Gael and, and other politicians. And I think what they've recognised in me is two things. One, I give them, I hope, good advice. And secondly, I understand their world. So, you know, if I'm talking to a politician, I would say, look, here's the technical business answer, but politically here's the sort of angle it may be turned. But at the end of the day, advisors advise and ministers decide. Okay, but bring me back to the night of the bank guarantee. And I know we're going into history now, but tell us about your own involvement that night. Well, I was actually up in Belfast that night. (laughs) So I wasn't there for the the bank guarantee, but it was a very interesting process. You were on the phone to people, weren't you? Ah, Yeah, half a dozen was on the phone to other people, you know. It's really interesting. Like, you know... um, I'd love if somebody wrote a really good detailed account of, of all the various phone calls from America and this, that and the other around the whole thing and the pressures and that. And even, you know, Michael Noonan would acknowledge, uh, heard him acknowledge a few times that, you know, while it gets very heated during the time, things like NAMA actually were a good idea. And and Michael would have been one of those who was against NAMA when it came out, but recognised that oh, it was a good thing. Oh, he embraced it as soon he embra- as he became he did. minister. But, but, you know, like, it's, it's, um, history is written by the victors, you know, at the end of the day. And was the bank guarantee a good or bad thing? Uh, I think, had it been possible to get a better answer at the time, a better answer might have been gotten. Like, the, the, like everybody who was, serious and senior was involved in this wasn't a, a solo run or a party political thing and um, I suppose the good news is and I'd have to give Enda, Enda Kenny a lot of credit for this uh, um, you know Ireland bounced back very quickly and history will treat Enda Kenny very kindly he had a very positive can-do mentality and everywhere he went we're going to be the best small country in the world to do business in He there was a positivity around him that really 
uh, helped kind of the country get back again. And certainly externally, like when I was over in America pretty quickly after that, you know, Ireland was open for business very quickly again. And is it true you were the architect of the infamous double Irish? Ah, it's rubbish. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we better explain what the double Irish was, which was effectively, and correct me please, because I'm probably not going to get this right, but a mechanism by which foreign companies were able to hold their sort of intellectual property almost nowhere, wasn't there? Or where they were taxed nowhere while it was uh, registered in Ireland. Or explain it to me. How yeah, well, work? The, no, I mean, essentially... The tax policy of the US, by design, uh, was kind of an imperial one designed to allow US companies to conquer the world. So the US tax system taxes the worldwide profits of US companies, except it won't tax them unless they were brought home. So US companies pretty quickly said, so if we keep our foreign profits abroad, uh, we're going to be at an advantage because we're not subjecting them to US tax until we bring them home. So really from the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, US companies focused on saying, let's keep our farm profits abroad. Now, what's the best answer we can get? So the best answer they get was keeping their intellectual property away from anywhere else and using Ireland as a hub to sell into Europe. But I mean, it, it's been around for, you know, when I was in short trousers. I suppose it just came into vogue a lot more when I was probably more adult. Okay, but in fairness to you as well, you were the one who persuaded the Irish government to abandon it. Yeah, I mean, it, and and pretty early on too, uh, it was, uh, I remember coming out and writing an op-ed in the Irish Times saying it's time for the double Irish school and people saying, what, what, what? But at the end of the day, Ireland needs a tax system that is fair and competitive. So fair being it's accepted as by the international community as appropriate. And I suppose nearly 10 years ago I could see the double Irish was not part of Ireland's long-term offering. And I got kind of friendly with a guy called Pascal Santaman, who was the OECD's leading this tax uh, charge. I spoke at a function with him in early 2015 and, and we kind of stayed in contact, spoke pretty regularly. And, you know, uh, it was clear to me we needed to get on the OECD train, but it was also clear to me we were going to make money out of this. And because I, 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 at the end of the day, what the OECD was trying to do was saying, you can't have profits in some far off location where you don't have substance. You need to have your profits where your substance is. Now, for US companies, only two places where their substance is, back home in the US or in Ireland. And my hypothesis which turned out right was a lot of companies would move that profit and that sub that uh, activity to Ireland. And By that's what's basing happened. their intellectual it, property, property in here. Ireland and then they could say that's the substance of their business. With their three and a half thousand people or four thousand people they're operating. that's where those profits exactly. would be taxed. But been taxed and we've at the seen, fi now 15% yeah. rate which is still less than they would pay in the United States. Correct. Um, well there's a variety of convolutions but yes but, but essentially we're now seeing the last three or four years the uh, positive upside of the OECD uh, changes, which is great. Now, there will be a downside uh, when they finally come. Well, that's it. Your friend yeah. from the OECD was actually quoted at length in the Business Post yesterday because we're sitting here on a Monday morning in which he more or less said that these big bumper corporation tax revenues that we're enjoying here in Ireland at present won't last. But we know that we've known that for some time. I, I said it about five years ago. We Why get it, won't they last? Because for a hundred years, at the behest of the big countries like the US and the UK, when they set the global tax rules after the First World War, they basically said um, to be taxable in a country, 
you have to have a physical presence there. Because at the time, in a goods economy, you really had to have boots on the ground to sell into it. You fast forward to the 21st century, I've never met anybody from iTunes in Ireland, but you can buy iTunes. You don't have to have a physical presence. What they're doing now is changing the rules that says, okay, to be taxable in a country now, you just have to sell into it. You don't have to have a physical presence. So we're in the process of changing the rules from saying, to be taxable in a country, you have to have a physical presence, to a new regime which will say to be taxable in a country you just have to sell into it. That that will still take a couple of years. The US haven't embraced that yet. In fact, the US could bring this whole thing down. I think there could be a trade war in about two years' time because if the US don't change these tax rules, Europe, who has done it already, is going to say, hang on, you guys. And I think they're giving Joe Biden a chance to get through the next election to see if he gets through it. But I think... Irrespective, if Congress don't move in the next two years, there could well be a trade war well, because of tax. Where would Ireland be then? Well, actually, it would. You would have a fortress Europe and a fortress US. So I think it becomes even more important for US companies to have an operational base in Europe. So I still think it's good for us. Now, might do not we keep win-winning here in Ireland? Well, at the moment, like if you look at it back in 2014, where when the OEC process kicked off, I remember saying to Michael Noonan. We've, in a poker terms, we've got a pair of twos here. And yet, Michael Noonan and Pascal Donoghue parlayed that pair of twos into a winning hand 10 years later. So there's been a bit of luck, and but there's been a bit more than luck. For example, Pascal Donoghue won the presidency of the Eurogroup by one vote, 10 votes to nine, I think, when it was voted on. He, he was able to use that position to make sure Ireland landed well he was able to pick up the phone to Janet Yellen. He was able to pick up the phone to Rishi Sunak or whoever at the time when he was uh, Chancellor. And he was able to put Ireland's case as to why Ireland needed time to get to a landing spot. And I think when we come to write the history of economic development in the last 10 or 15 years in Ireland, how Ireland, the Irish government managed the OEC process and managed the landing point where we're now. And I laugh at this. Some people still call us a tax haven because we're collecting too much tax. That's kind of seems a bit strange to me. And we managed that process exceptionally well. Do you think we'll, uh, Pascal Donoghue, make a good boss to the IMF? I think they'd be lucky to have him, but uh, he has a public service streak as wide as the river and I would not be a bit surprised if he ran in the next election and continued on. Okay, what should he do though? What oh, would, sorry. Should he personally I go think to the IMF he job? Has, well, I think he has given a huge amount to the state. I don't think anyone would blame him if he were offered and took the IMF job. But as I said, for anybody who knows him, he has a public service streak. Would there be a benefit to Ireland in him taking that job? There always is, uh, wherever. Uh, if you think back to when Peter Sutherland was the leader of the GATT talks, or you know, and I, I saw it in my old global organisation in PwC, Irish people do really, really well around the world in various organisations. And that's we're good at relationships and we're good at storytelling. And I mean that in a positive way. Uh, People, uh, uh, we get on well with people. Uh, We're not, and you know, sometimes it was an advantage. We weren't British. We were English, but not, we spoke English before British. Uh, We get on with people. We create good relationships uh, and we're good at articulating Generally. Something else for the IDA thing, I was wondering if you, if it's not about tax and it's about mm. other things and it's about having an educated workforce or bringing in people because yeah. what you've yes. done in PwC is something that uh, every company com- yes. has had to do is that they've had to bring in people from outside Ireland to fill key positions. 
But the one thing that always has baffled me, and I've been banging on about this for going on seven or eight years at this stage, is with this incredible and much-needed expansion in the number of jobs and all the taxes that that has brought in, corporation taxes, income taxes, the rest of it, why didn't the government invest more in housing to provide housing? Could this be the, one of the big things that the impediments to future investment is that a lot of companies will say, well, that's great, but where are we going to have our workers living? Where are our managers, if they come from the United States, going to live? Yeah, it's an issue. And it's funny, if I go back three or four years, five years, schooling was one of the things that came in. Uh, quite a lot uh, and then since then there's a back at area school has opened in Leopardstown and just the pressure seems to have gone off that housing has come up a few times there's no doubt about it I do get a sense this could be a record year 2024 in housing terms and I've heard one or two politicians talks we could be close to 40,000 we're about 18 months behind in housing is probably where we'd like to be and I think the pressure is slightly, very slightly. I think we, we're near the crest of the wave here. I think in 18 months' time, it could be a much better place. But there is no doubt housing is an issue. It comes back loud and clear. And there have been one or two instances where I think we might not have got projects where housing wasn't the determining factor, but certainly has been marked as a negative against us. Okay, so what are your ambitions, so when it comes to creation of jobs in the IDA role? Because I think 2023 was more difficult, wasn't it, than the previous well, years? It was at one level, but yet 300, it was the second highest number of uh, foreign direct investment jobs, and there's a little over 300,000, fractionally down in the year before. The thing that surprised me when I looked through the numbers last week, I'm doing a lot of deep dive reading over the last week, 54% of that 300,000 people are outside Dublin. Uh, around the regions. Now, I'm a Westmeath man. Um, Michael Lohan is a Leitrim man, the chief executive. Uh, we'd be flying the flag for uh, outside Dublin, uh, but the, the balance is very good. So it, it was a tough year, but yet we came out of it very well. And I think the next few years will equally be, like, it's competitive. The geopolitical issues around, what you know, America, the war in Ukraine, there's a huge amount of, of flux. And I think if we can stay to the, 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 our ambition should be that when companies are looking to Europe as a marketplace and they want to expand into Europe, that Ireland is one of the top two countries. You actually brought up something interesting, which I hadn't thought of before you just mentioned it, this urban-rural divide. When I say mm. urban, with no disrespect to my own native city of Cork <laughs> or to Limerick or Waterford or Galway, mm. There is a perception perhaps throughout the country that too much has become centred in Dublin, even to the extent is that Dublin Airport is treated as if it's the only airport in the yes. country when we have Shannon and we have Cork. Cork. So how well do you think does the IDA do and how well it's going to have to do to persuade companies that Ireland is not just about Dublin? Yeah, and as I say, I was surprised when I saw the numbers that 54% of the jobs are actually outside uh, Dublin. And there's no doubt hubs emerge, med tech in the west of Ireland, pharma down around Cork, tech around Dublin. And you know, once you create that sort of seed, a lot of them, uh, a lot of them then cluster around that. But actually, oh, sorry, which is important, even for things like financial services, services yes, like, so the PwCs, I presume. You now have a lot of people who want to go to places like Cork or Galway are needed there to service the multinational businesses that work in those areas. Well, one of the big uh, offices, and we've uh, PwC have a, a wide network. One of the big offices that expanded in the last two or three years was Kilkenny, because there's a lot now of back office financial services been done in Kilkenny. So I think part of the we are being 
really successful now in moving it outside Dublin. Uh, and, and probably the stories are only known in those areas. But there are areas like Athen Rye where announcements have been made and are, are all around the country that... Um, I got a, a a text from one TD when I was appointed saying, oh, that's wonderful. Now, you won't forget our county sort of thing, you know. But it's not about counties, it's about regions. So, for example, if a company were to go to Athlone, for example, um, that has an impact on Roscommon, Galway, Leash, Offaly, Longford, Roscommon, you know, in a quite a wide area. The, f- the fact that you got a text from a TD, does this suggest that they will expect you to be more accessible chairman of the IDA to politicians all over the country that you regard it as one of them? Them being a politician. It was well, a Finnegale a, 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 a TD. No, but, yeah, but, a, but a political animal. <laughs> well, I, I suppose I've spent a lifetime in business. I've spent a lifetime engaging with the body politic as well. I know a lot of people and a lot of people know me. So I suspect, yes, um, I, I I find myself being canvassed on a regular basis. All right. But that's, but that's Ireland. How much time do you intend giving this role? Because you said you've been doing a lot of reading for yeah, it. Yeah. But how much of your time will you give to it? And what other things do you intend doing? Um, I, it, it, it's hard to know. I, I, I my rough take at this point is about a day a week, I'd say, uh, because there's 11 board meetings. There'll be four strategy meetings this year uh, because it's a strategy refresh year. There's a couple of subcommittees. You know, I'd probably want to speak. That's more than a day a week. Uh, ah, yeah, it might be more. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah. But it's a bit of a suck it and see, you know. I, um, I'll have a desk in there and uh, I'll have a, a, a corner I can go into and, and work away. But, like, I really, there's a super, super team in IDA. And, I, like, while I've only, I was, I, Wednesday was my first day on the job and it was the annual IDA conference where they get people back home from all around the world, give them all the key messages. So it was a fantastic immersion day one and there was a dinner that night for everybody and they had their values awards and got to meet lots of people. People, got to understand a bit about the culture of the organisation. Now, I've worked with the organisation for 20 odd years, but it's only when you're you're in there and you're hearing the case. It's just like when I, over the last 30 odd years, when I go around America, they would say IDA are one of the best in the world, along with Singapore, sometimes Israel, in terms of getting companies in. Their people are absolutely brilliant. They, they get blood on their shirt for Ireland. So it is a wonderful organisation. And my job really with the rest of the board and with the executive is just to make sure Ireland stays to the forefront. And what else will you do with your time? Uh, good question. Uh, I am taking over as chair as well of the IIEA, which is the Institute for International European Affairs. It's Brendan Halligan's old shop uh, mm. from Rory Quinn. Uh, Terence O'Rourke was minding the thing as interim chair. Um, I'm a big sports fan. Uh, so I, I don't know, we have a bit in common there. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> to our, for we our, both for our age group are big Leeds United, Leeds United supporters. Yeah, and I'm a big Connacht rugby supporter and uh, Irish rugby supporter. I went, I, after I retired, I did 10 games at the World Cup, uh, including the final, but my heart was broken in Paris when New Zealand beat us. Uh, and a couple of other companies talked to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to work at the intensity I've been working for the last, uh, you know, few decades, but I'll, be busy enough all the same. And I read I'm good enough to cook as well. I, I've, I've, my mate bought me a couple of cookery lessons, and I've cooked a good stir fry last night now. And uh, but I read actually that there's a possibility of you doing a book on the history of Irish professional rugby. Uh, I've, I've, I'm a rugby stat under to the end of the day, and you know, I, I, a few years back, I was getting annoyed by the mistakes in various record books, and that I've kind of compiled a book. I'm chatting to uh, Ivan O'Brien of O'Brien Press about publishing it sometime maybe later in the year of basically 
a, a kind of compendium of Ireland's games in uh, since the professional area uh, came out in 1995, you know, and... Uh, and getting all the stats right. Getting all the stats right. Uh, Look, one final thing I want to ask you about is, I mean, you've mentioned her a number of times along the way, your mother Mary, yeah. uh, who was a regular on my TV show, yeah, Tonight yeah. Show with Ivan Yates. And... Uh, I noticed towards the end of our time there, she was finding it a little bit more difficult with her mobility and yeah. everything. How is she now? Okay. I mean, good days and bad days. She About two years ago, she nearly died. Uh, she had a very bad case of sepsis. And uh, I remember Christmas Eve two years ago, the consultant saying to me, well, we've a measure for infection. And, you know, if you've got 10, you've a bit of an infection. Your mother's at 300. Oh, gosh. And uh, she spent six months in at a hospital uh, in Tullamore and up in Dublin here. And... Uh, she got out now. She's in a wheelchair, and um, you know her spirit is strong. Her, she wouldn't be as mentally sharp as she used to be. Uh, now, having said that, I got a call the morning. Uh, the idea announcement was in the paper. Uh, she called me, and she was really proud. And uh, um, it's tough, but like many people in your listeners, when your parents get to a certain, she's eighty six now. She'll be eighty seven in May. Her spirit is strong, and like she's the last Lenahan left of her generation of of her three sibling or four of them in total and they married into she's the only one left and it, as a result it's funny um, each my cousins Connor and Anita Lena and Brian's son or uh, children they would come and see her uh, Maura and Aideen from, from Anne then and they would come see her Grania uh, from Paddy Lena and something they see her as the last the last matriarch so she loves that and in fairness Bertie goes to see her about once a month he'll pop in and Shane Ross been very good and and old friends visit her and, and you know she's she loves seeing her grandkids come up and Angus comes up regularly from Athlone she's up here in Dublin with us but it's it's tough you know it's, it's tough knowing what she was yeah, that must be tough for you because I was, she like, was a feisty operator. As she was. And, and I, this, as I know, we yeah, like, yeah. a couple of times she gave out to me like <laughs> off air <laughs> ah, about various things I've written and said and she'd really get stuck into you, you know. Ah, yeah, and, uh, you know, but like, I, I'm no different to anybody. Like, there's lots of people around Ireland whose, whose parents get to a certain age and I think it's funny, my dad died very young. Uh, he was only 65 and it was very sudden. I was down, I was down at the Munster game against Dad Francais when Axel Foley scored the hat-trick of tries and I remember ringing him before the game because he used to bring me even as a kid to games and I was chatting to him on a Sunday and he collapsed that evening and he was dead on Tuesday morning and uh, and there was something awful about the suddenness of it and you know it's it's um, so it's great to have mum while we have her yeah wish her the best from I will do Thank you so much for joining me on this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, which you can get on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, produced in association with Strategic Power Connect. There's lots of other guests there, some of whom I think Fergal would know as well from having (laughs) invested in their businesses or having advised over the years. Uh, So until the next time, thank you for listening. Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.